What's up, everybody? Welcome to the final episode of season one of Let's Talk Elephants. Um, This has been an incredible experience for me, and I appreciate everyone who has listened to any episode at all, but I especially appreciate anyone who is still here with me now finishing out my inaugural season. So thank you guys again. Um, The topic of conversation for the season finale is going to be centered around this idea of death with dignity. My guest is Dr. Daniel Bubb. I actually had him as a professor for one of my honors college classes this past semester, but his reason for being on the show today is actually based more on a personal experience than on an academic one. Um, He wrote legislators in Nevada encouraging them to pass the death with dignity bill because of a painful experience he had with the passing of his father from stage four pancreatic cancer. So he has seen firsthand what it is like for a loved one to suffer from a terminal illness, and anyone who has gone through this knows how incredibly difficult and traumatic this is. So, Dr. Bob, um, first and foremost, I just want to say I'm really sorry for your loss. Um, I had a grandparent who suffered from dementia and Parkinson's disease up until he passed away in 2018. So, you know, I'm I know what that feels like. It was just very painful for my family. You know, it's hard to watch someone that you grew up with who is full of life and vigor sort of deteriorate into this state where you don't recognize them and they're not themselves physically or mentally. Um, And I can't even imagine what it would be like with a parent. Um, If you wouldn't mind, could you please just, you know, introduce yourself to the listeners and then whatever details you're comfortable sharing about your experience with your dad, just go ahead and share. All right. Well, thank you, Destiny, for having me today. I'm glad to be here. I know it's a pretty serious topic, uh, one that a lot of people have experience with when you're particularly watching a loved one deteriorate. There's nothing easy about it. It's very frustrating, perhaps in the greatest sense of a feeling of hopelessness, because all you can pretty much do is console them through the remaining time, and that's it. And so I appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk to you today, and I'll tell you a little bit about the experience with my father. But just from, for your listeners, just kind of a, kind of a macro perspective, a little bit of background context. So there is a national organization called Death with Dignity, and they have individual chapters within states. But the Death with Dignity Foundation is advocating on behalf of terminally ill patients, who, as we know, terminal means they're going to die. Their, their illness is so far along, doctors really can't do anything to cure it. And so really what they do at that point is they just help them manage the pain. And so this was a case with my father. Um, so my father passed away in 2016. And about a year prior to his death, um, I was walking with him and my mom through the, the mall, the gallery mall, and I noticed my father was looking pretty yellow. His skin color was yellow, almost the color of a highlighter. And so I didn't want to pry, but I knew something was wrong. Sure enough, a few days later, I'm in a faculty meeting here in the Honors College, and I get an emergency phone call saying he's in the emergency room. So I quick gather my stuff, over we go, and sure enough, he's in the ER, and his skin color literally is yellow. I mean, it literally is the color of a highlighter. Mm -hmm. And so... What they did is, just like when you have patients whose arteries are clogged and they put stents in them, 
kind of have to bear, barrel through and then put the stent there. So what happened was the, the tumor had grown over my father's uh, bile duct on top of the pancreas. And so what they had to do is they had to drill through the tumor, put a stent there so you could get the bile and the bilirubin going through there because if you don't leave that untreated, the, the patient can die mm-hmm. from, from poisoning from the, the bile and the bilirubin. So they did that, and a few days later, sure enough, his, his skin color was back to normal. He looked great. But then came the really bad news. The doctor came in and said, you have cancer. We weren't ready for that because my dad was a generally a pretty healthy guy. He walked a lot, didn't smoke, didn't drink, watched his weight. But somehow, and even to this day, we still don't know how he got pancreatic cancer. And so what happened was, and this is something that your listeners may especially want to listen to, if they know anybody who has pancreatic cancer, you have to try to catch it early. And the challenge is the symptoms look like any other illness. So, for example, if you have sores on your body, those might be shingles. So the doctor is going to treat you for shingles. Didn't know it, but these are all the signs leading to pancreatic cancer. And with pancreatic cancer patients, usually they catch them when it's too late. When you're stage four, you have about a 4% survival rate. And so um, that's when they caught it, and it was basically too late. I mean, I, my dad and went over to UCLA Medical Center. They have the top pancreatic cancer unit in the country over there. And a doctor came in with a couple of residents and sat down for about an hour and a half. And my dad just broke down. I, I was 42 years old at the time. I had never seen my dad cry once. And that was the first time I saw it. He just really broke down. Mm-hmm. And the doctor was really nice, the chief of surgery. And he was asking him all these questions. You know, when's your pain? Where is it? How often is it? Can you eat anything? One of the things with cancer patients is one of the first things that happens is the appetite goes. Right. You know, food just doesn't sound good, so they lose a lot of weight. And so they ran a bunch of tests, and then he regularly met with an oncologist. I would take him over to get his chemotherapy treatment and everything like that. And surprisingly, he, he, he lasted for about 10 months after the diagnosis. Usually most people last for three or four months mm-hmm. unless... You are healthy or you have top doctors like Alex, Alex Trebek, the game show host of Jeopardy. He has stage four pancreatic cancer, oh, wow. and he's been successful with it so far, and it's been about a year. Mm-hmm. So I know their immunotherapies are trying different things right now. But it, the, the, the most frustrating thing, and this is usually the case, as you mentioned with your grandparent, is watching a body wither away. In my dad's case, you had a brilliant mind trapped in a body that was failing him. And so the question becomes, and it's a hard one, I understand both sides, okay? On one side, you have family that wants to keep them around as long as they can. You have doctors who will not euthanize the patient Mm -hmm. because it's antithetical to the Hippocratic Oath they take. You have religious people who do not want to you know, basically euthanize a patient. Mm-hmm. And so this is what you have to be prepared for. If you advocate on behalf of it, there's a large group of people. They're powerful. They have a loud voice. Yeah. And they'll push back. Right. But on the, and, and then you also have hospice. And this is what happens lots of times, too, is they'll put people in hospice. And hospice basically means you no longer treat the illness. You just manage the pain until the patient dies. Right. But for those of us on the side of death with dignity, we ask... A really human question. Do you really want to watch your family member go through this? Right. 
even if you gave them the most potent painkiller, my father was taking morphine. Dilaudid is more powerful than morphine. I mean, super potent drugs. Mm -hmm. But it's the quality of life. Right. You won't really want to watch them go through that. Right. Or do we need to take more of a compassionate approach and say maybe it's better to euthanize a patient so they don't have to go through that? So this bill was proposed, but it was not passed in Nevada, correct? Right. So what happened was... Actually, this is the furthest the bill has ever gone. Okay. So there is a politician in the Nevada State Assembly who's also a doctor, and mm -hmm. he's the one who proposed the bill. Okay. Before, it never, it never even made it into committee. Mm -hmm. But with the largely Democratic State Assembly, mm -hmm. it made it into committee. It was voted out of committee, I believe, by a vote of 10 to 6 or something like that. Mm -hmm. But it never got a hearing on the floor. Okay. And that may be because they had a whole bunch of other bills to listen to, but there also was a lot of lobbying going on right. against it. Yes, and yeah. so I think that's why it didn't pass. Okay. Um, so I just want to read this little explanation of the Nevada Death with Dignity bill that I got from the Death with Dignity's organization's website um, so that everyone's on the same page. Mm -hmm. So here it reads, um, modeled on the Oregon Death with Dignity Act, an aid in dying law would allow qualified adult residents of Nevada with a terminal illness to legally obtain a prescription from their physician for medications to end their life peacefully in a dignified way at the place and time of their choosing. So there are a few things that stick out to me about this, and I'll sort of just go through them one at, one at a time, starting with the first word, adult. So... Do you know if adult in this context means 18 or 21 or at what age does this bill apply? And do you think um, like so first, first and foremost, at what age does this start? Is it 18? I believe it would be 18. OK. Um, do you think that the low age would cause any discomfort um, in some people? Because I know I know terminal is terminal um, and it's really unfortunate that a young person would have a terminal disease. But um I can see some people being more uncomfortable when they think of like a 21-year-old or an 18-year-old opting out of life. Um, like, what's your opinion on that? Well, I think it's understandable because it's a young person. Usually they're healthy. They have a better chance of withstanding the illness right. than an older person. Mm -hmm. But, of course, it depends on the severity of the illness. Right. If it's severe to the point where... And this, I, I would think there basically has to be unanimous agreement among doctors mm -hmm. that they're not going to be able to cure it. Right. So let's say, for example, you have a 21-year-old with advanced leukemia. Now, they have made some strides with leukemia, but not enough yet to where they can entirely cure somebody who's advanced at that age. Right. And so you, I think you would have to have a unanimous consent with doctors. Okay saying yeah. we just we're not gonna be able to save this person yeah and so yeah so that leads me kind of like to the next part that i want to touch on which is the word terminal um so basically this only applies to people in cases where they know for a fact exactly that the person is not going to come yes. out on the other side alive right. right um so that's that's terminal is basically yes. every single doctor is saying there's no way this person's going to survive right. this right yeah okay yeah mm -hmm. um so this is another area where I can see a little bit of controversy um, because what if a doctor says, okay, this is a terminal illness, but you have six months to live. Um, and that person says, well, I don't want six months or I don't, I don't want a year. I don't want however long because even though I'm decent now or wherever they're at at that point, 
I don't want to see myself get to this point of weakness and this point of deterioration. Um, I don't want to live terribly. I don't want to have a low quality of life. Are they allowed to opt out of the time they have left? Mm -hmm. So so, so, so there are a couple of possibilities here. One is they would have to talk with a family and the family is going to have to make a decision. Or you can do what my father did. And that is he gave me what's called medical power of attorney where I make all the decisions regarding his health. So if, for example, he codes and does not and doesn't want to be resuscitated, he signs what's called a do not resuscitate order or DNI, then the hospital has to recognize that. Mm-hmm. Um, or excuse me, a DNR. Um, you can also hire an attorney. You can go to a lawyer and you can have a legal decree written and saying that, you know, we don't want, you know, Mr. Bub to have to suffer for the next six months. We implore the legal community through our attorney that the decision has been made to ideally euthanize Mr. Bub. Mm-hmm. So you can do that. So there are legal ways you can do it. It's very murky. You have to be very, very careful. In fact, probably talk to an attorney. Mm-hmm. But from my experiences, and I'm currently also, you know, legal power of attorney, medical power of attorney with my mother because she's elderly. Mm-hmm. So any medical decisions I, I make and the doctors in the hospitals have to honor them because they're legal. They've been notarized, they've been signed, and this is a family agreement. So there are a few different avenues you can go. Okay. Mm-hmm. But mainly I think um, my area of concern, because I'm just trying to think, I guess it really doesn't matter what my opinion would be because at the end of the day, it's this person's mm-hmm. autonomous choice mm-hmm. what to do with their mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. But in a way, I can see how that would be perceived mm-hmm. as assisted suicide mm-hmm. because, you know, if mm-hmm. you have. Um, especially because people who are initially diagnosed with severe diseases, mm-hmm. such mm-hmm. as cancer, mm-hmm. research has shown how depressed they can mm-hmm. be um, as soon as they get that diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. like, I worry about, oh, what if someone makes an impulsive decision because mm-hmm. they get diagnosed mm-hmm. with a stage four cancer mm-hmm. and they have a year left mm-hmm. and they're very depressed with their diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So they're like, you know what? Just kill it now. Like, just just give me the prescription. Um, I don't want to deal with this year. And, you know, as a, I'm thinking, you know, if one of my family members did that, it's already traumatic enough that they were just diagnosed with cancer. And then on top of that, you know, to me, I might perceive it as an impulsive decision. Well, okay, you're feeling sad right now, and I understand that. But, you know, what about this year that we still have together? I how do, do you know how it works with that? Like if they have to wait a certain amount right. of time before they can make they, that decision? They, they, they don't. But I think the thing that's important for people to realize is you don't make these decisions overnight. Yeah. These take time. And that's what I'm saying. I understand both sides have a point. And mm-hmm. they're heavily fraught. Mm-hmm. They really, truly are. Because this comes down to moral. It comes down to family. And so you have to let the family make its decision. And like I said, they can appoint somebody to be medical power of attorney, or they can go to an actual attorney, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, it's true. And a lot of people do this. And I've heard doctors tell me, you know, Dan, I, I've had patients whose families told me to go ahead and go through this very expensive surgery because they want to keep the person around, but the surgery is not going to really do much. So that's why it is such a difficult decision. No matter which way you decide here, neither one is easy. They are extremely difficult. You have to know the law. 
you have to be in contact with doctors. Okay? So I can't just randomly go off and say, well, my mom's going to die, so, you know, take no, there, there is a lot of planning. There's a lot of conversation, even legal, that has to take place. Right. So that's why I, I think if, if families are going through this, they should consult kind of like a family planning council, mm-hmm. an advice group that they can go to and say, what do we do if we have somebody who's terminally ill in our family? Mm-hmm. Because here's the other thing. The state of Washington actually requires the patient to verbally say, I want you to euthanize me. Okay, because so it is euthanasia. It, it basically okay. is. And and there are also other cases here. I mean, going back, I'm trying to remember, I think it was Terry Schiavo. She was mentally, I mean, basically almost brain dead. Mm-hmm. And they were thinking of euthanizing her, but because she couldn't verbally say anything, I think it was in Florida, one of the states, it went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the court ruled against it, saying you can't do it. And so these decisions are very heavy. They take a lot of thought and discussion, legal discussion, and medical discussion. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a very difficult conversation to have, very emotional. But that's why in the end the family has to decide yeah. what do they want to do. And so that's why, like I said, I can understand, but both arguments have validity, both sides. Um, So another aspect I want to touch on is the prescription that they're given to end their life. So do you know much about the effects of it? Because I'm wondering how painless a drug that kills you could actually be, you know, if there's going to be vomiting or convulsions. I, 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 I don't know much about that because I've never seen it happen. Right. my my understanding, this is just general understanding, but I, I don't I can't say with one hundred percent certainty is that they're given a shot. It's okay. like a shot that's gonna eventually kill you. Okay. Um in my dad's case, um he was very heavily medicated. He was given a lot of painkiller because he got to the point where he was so skinny he would actually have to sit and lean sideways on his chair. Um and here's the hard part. You're, you, you're in so much pain that that's all you think about the entire day. How can I manage this? You're not thinking about how am I going to pay these bills, who's going to pick up the kids, this or that, right? Right. How am I going to get through today? And that is every day. Mm-hmm. And that's why, and my dad said this to me before he died. The day before he died, I was sitting next to him and I was talking with him. He said, Dan... This is no way for a human being to live. Really hard. It is super hard because that's all you can think about. You yeah. can't eat. I was trying to keep him going on smoothies because they have nutrients in them and you can keep them down. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of food you either have to puree so you keep make really bland so they can soup, you know, whatever to, to keep it down. And that's why I say it, it's extraordinarily painful right. to watch somebody go through that. So basically, the no matter what the prescription does to to end the life, it's still better than suffering every single day, you know, because right. you're trading in many, many, or, you know, I guess that's mm-hmm. relative, but you're trading to the person who's in pain, it feels mm-hmm. like many, many more days of right. pain versus maybe a moment of pain so that you can have peace. Right. 
So I, I definitely, I see the appeal. And, and usually, usually at that point, a lot of people will go to hospice. Because yeah. like I said, hospice is managing the pain. They right. have a doctor on call who prescribes super potent drugs. And you administer them as needed. It takes the pain away from the patient. But how long are you going to keep them on the painkillers? How long right. are you going to keep them going? It, it's, it's, a, it's an extremely moral and emotionally fraught situation right because they're dealing with human life exactly and like i said there's nothing easy about it deciding about it right yeah yeah Yeah. um the last part of this i want to address is the fact that the bill allows a person to choose the time and place of their death um so you know automatically in in my head I think who's going to come and remove the body from the premises wherever they decide, whether it be in their home or someplace in nature. Like, how does a person have their body removed? Because I can't imagine that it would be healthy for a family member to. So, so, so here, here's what you do. And this was the family does ahead of time. This is what we did with my father. We went over to the local mortuary and we told them, father's terminally ill. He's probably got three to six months to live, wants to be cremated. So they sit down with you and they walk you through the whole process. You sign the paperwork, you pay, I think it's a couple thousand dollars. It's not cheap. And so basically what happens is when the patient dies, you call 911. Paramedics come and have to verify that the patient is dead. Now, in the case of my dad, we didn't have to call 911 because the hospice nurse was there and she could verify it. So if you have some sort of medical professional mm-hmm. to verify okay the person's dead then the mortuary comes along and they pick up the body mm-hmm. and they they take it away okay. so you could pre-arrange you, you can pre-arrange so so and here's <laughs> it, it, it's it, yeah it's it's kind of difficult so you can pay to have it arranged within the state or you pay a little more money and anywhere you go in the country if the patient dies they're taken care of Okay. Usually costs a little bit more. Yeah, kind of cynical again. <laughs> so I can see how hard it is to get something like this passed because you have to have multiple different parties agree. So you know you have to have the hospital agree. You have to have prescription companies agree to provide that. You have to have mortuaries agree to deal with like pre-organized death. Um, you have to have family agree. So it, it's so complex, especially on an issue that's already in emotionally complex right. and then you add actual technicalities to it and all the legalities yeah that's right. what i'm saying whatever decision you make is really heavily fraught it's multi-layered so it's very complex right. it's not like you can say okay yeah here just you know admission administer this to mr bub tomorrow boom right it has to go through medical hurdles legal hurdles it's not easy right and, and i mean i I don't envy anybody in that situation right? because it's extremely difficult. That's why, like I said, you have to talk it through. Right. You have to talk it through with the family. Mm-hmm. If you can appoint somebody to be a medical power of attorney, that helps because mm-hmm. that person is going to be the decision maker, whatever happens from that point on. Mm-hmm. But it's not easy. Right. And, and my destiny, my heart goes out to anybody who has to go through that, and a lot of people do. Right. I'll never forget. Um, watching my dad go through chemotherapy, how so many other people are there. Mm-hmm. When we were over at UCLA Medical Center, so many people, and they were skin and bones. Mm-hmm. They're not going to survive. Right. And I, 
I don't break down very frequently, but I broke down in the airport LAX. Yeah. Because after all that I witnessed, and then with my dad's situation, when they called us at the airport, they said it had spread in your lungs. And then at that point, we knew yeah. he's going to die. Yeah. So as a family, and I made the decision as medical power returning, we switched over to hospice. And then he went away. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it was the most painful experience of my yeah. life. You know, that reminds me, one of the hardest things about um, my grandpa's funeral was, you know, the experience is hard. It's something that, honestly, I didn't, I didn't really process it until later on because actually he was, he was step family. So it wasn't like blood family, but I had, you know, my, my stepdad and my mom married when I was like nine. So I, I, he was family. Um, so I really didn't process the whole thing until later on. Um, and it would, there would be weird days where, you know, sometimes you think you're, you're over something mm-hmm. or that you've coped with something and then you just have random mm-hmm. days where mm-hmm. it's a bad day um, and, and you can't get it together mm-hmm. or, you know, you have a really stressful day and everything's mm-hmm. going wrong mm-hmm. and you just got to let it out yeah. and you realize yeah. that it's, it's yeah. underneath everything. Um, yeah. And yeah. the hardest thing about the, the actual funeral mm-hmm. was, you know, the funeral's hard, mm-hmm. but in a couple rows in front of me there was a couple and the male had parkinson's mm-hmm. you could tell because he was shaking mm-hmm. um and i didn't notice it at mm-hmm. first and at the very end i noticed that he had parkinson's and that's mm-hmm. that's when i lost it because i was yeah. like how yeah. sad for this person sure. to be here yeah. and see yeah. what's happening and then you know, what they're going coming. through right you, you raise a good point and i think this is really important for your listeners in fact i would tell this to anybody around the world okay i know it's gonna be a pretty bold statement but i would tell anybody around the world yeah there is no playbook for grieving there is no playbook that says if a parent or grandparent dies turn to page 20 and follow this right grieving can take many different forms some people can get through a pretty quickly a lot of people don't statistically from what i heard grieving takes a minimum of three years it's a long time some people i mean my mother and father were married for 48 years we are now in the fifth year since my father died and there's still times when i will be driving my mother will be talking gosh i miss your dad and this and that now it has diminished because before, oh my goodness, you almost couldn't go anywhere because it would bring back memories. I mean, there were certain streets, even to this day, I will not drive down because it will bring back memories. Right. So the thing you have to do is give people space to grieve as long as it takes. And you know what? It may take a lifetime. Yeah. They may never get through it. But that's part of being human. Right. The people about whom I have a problem are the ones who say get over it. Yeah. They are 100% wrong. Yeah. You never tell anybody, oh, come on, just suck it up and get over it. My uncle died. No. no. Right. You do what you have to do, and it's perfectly okay. Right. And I feel like people who make comments like that are probably people who have yet to experience real pain. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's terrible. You, you would 
I would never tell anybody that. Even the most stoic, even the most, you know, kind of thick-skinned person. Because, you know, part of being human is grieving. Right. And it's going through the trauma. And like I say, you go through the five stages of grief and, you know, anger and this and that. Right. I watched my mother go through that. I went through part of it, you know. Right. But, um, and, you know, I, I've had situations where... You know, students suddenly lost a loved one or somebody I know lost a loved one and I kind of try to help them through it. And I always tell them, you take your time and you grieve however you need to, okay? Mm-hmm. Don't let anybody tell you how to grieve. Right. It, that is how you do it. Don't apologize for it. Don't feel bad about it because that's how you are. Mm-hmm. Period. Okay. Right. So um, it, it's hard. It's hard. There are times I miss my dad. There are times I wish he was around saying, Dad, I need your advice right now. But he's not. Yeah. And you have to deal with that. Is, um, is this something that if it were an option, do you think your dad would have done it? The death with dignity? I think so, yeah. He, yeah. he wanted out. There, yeah. there were times when he said, I want out. Right. He was trapped. He, yeah. he, like I said, his mind was very acute. It was very aware. But it was trapped in a body that was failing him. And this happens to a lot of terminally ill patients. Their minds are still sharp, but they're trapped in bodies that are failing them. Right. And it's the worst situation you can be in. Right. And if you're a family member, it's terrible because yeah. it's helpless. You know there's only so much that you can do. Right. But you just have to kind of prepare yourself for, you know, death. Yeah. And that's not easy. How long would you say he was, like, severely suffering? Like in oh, I, I, I want to say, say for at least six to nine months. Yeah, that's just... And that, and that, see, this is a problem because you're, you're dealing with a moral dilemma here. Yeah. Do we follow the law? Do you follow the doctor's advice, hospice? Or do you invoke compassion where you say, okay, I know hospice can manage the pain, but I really don't want to watch my loved one suffer anymore mm-hmm. it is an extremely difficult decision it's not light by any means right. and like you're saying like we're saying there are a lot of layers to it there are a lot of things you have to go through so if you have somebody who's terminally ill be prepared to have a long conversation with your family right and if you need advice there are centers out there you can turn to where you can then they can tell you hey you should do this this and this my advice to anybody who's going through it would be appoint somebody medical power of attorney. Remember the family who can make the big decisions. You have mm-hmm. to trust that person. Right. Or have a family attorney, somebody know who's a lawyer, who can help you with it. But, you know, just be prepared for a very difficult conversation, mm-hmm. an extremely emotionally difficult time, and and realize that it's going to take a long time for you to heal. Right. And that is perfectly okay. Don't feel rushed. Do not rush through any of it at all. Mm-hmm. But just be prepared for an extremely emotionally difficult time. Right. One thing I think is really interesting and kind of like a paradox is that we don't hesitate. We It's very normal for us to euthanize our pets. You know, we don't want to see our animals suffer. You have vets that are willing to be like, I can tell that this animal is in pain. And, you know, animals can't consent to that so 
to me, it would make sense. Okay, mm-hmm. you have a human that's verbalizing mm-hmm. to you that they are suffering. We have concluded that they're not going to survive mm-hmm. this, but it's, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, no, we can't do it. We can't, we're going to let our mm-hmm. humans suffer, mm-hmm. but not our pets. Right. That's something that's really interesting to me. Well, as you know, we live in a legal world. It's yeah. a litigious world. Everybody likes to sue everybody, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> we, we, we make all these laws for, for everybody to abide by. But what, one of the things, kind of analogous with a pet, pets also are really good at hiding pain. Mm-hmm. Dogs especially are good at hiding pain. And you won't know it until they're just in extreme agony. And that's when, yeah, it's very uncomfortable and and traumatic but you know that again these are all the gray morally gray areas where do you draw the line between a pet and a human being mm-hmm. where do you draw the line between euthanizing a pet or giving them performing surgery treating them and same thing with a human mm-hmm. um and and there are laws i mean there's supreme court cases on this so that's why i say it's heavily fraught no matter how you approach right. it and that's what you got to be ready for and that's where it helps maybe to have have some sort of counseling mm-hmm. because they can there there are organizations that help you navigate through that difficult channel of everything right. you have to go through and prepare for it right. i can tell you i have friends of mine who are elderly and you know i'm i'm the head of one of our church groups and every single year somebody says dan can we can anybody tell me any organization here in Henderson or Las Vegas on what to do when you have an elderly parent living with you who is invalid and who perhaps may become terminally ill? How do you handle that? Oh my gosh, you know, because everybody knew that what I'd gone through with my father. And I, I told them of a few organizations that I know of uh, to consult. So yeah, whenever in, in doubt or anything, there are organizations out there, and that's really, really nice because mm-hmm. at one point we didn't have those. I couldn't even imagine what people right. were going through back then. Right. You know, I can imagine. So, um, so it's a good thing we have organizations now. Right, for sure, mm-hmm. to give mm-hmm. you some guidance. Mm-hmm. Um, so speaking kind of the, the legality behind all of it and the technicality, mm-hmm. I, I read that only, you know, competent adults are allowed to make this sort of decision. So, you know, right. people who are um, – not in their right mind could not legally consent mm-hmm. for a procedure mm-hmm. like this because mm-hmm. you know like my grandpa had dementia and he um he was just not himself towards the end of his life you know he had a phd mm-hmm. he was also a very intelligent individual mm-hmm. and he just was not aware of things that were yeah. going on around right. him he thought right. there was a war going on right. and right. um he would not you know the the, the dementia obviously severely impacted his yeah. perception and ability yeah, to make sure. decisions so in in those cases, do they not have the option? Because I think about people who are in a coma or like in a vegetative state and they kind of give the family the option mm-hmm. to pull the plug. Mm-hmm. Well, what about people, you know, who are not vegetative, right. but they're also not yeah. there? Because I worry about conflict of interest. Yeah, there, there's a yeah. conflict of interest. There's a huge legal hurdle there. And this, again, is where it comes with the family, and it comes with the doctor. The doctors and the family are going to have to negotiate here. So I'll give you what <clears throat> the example that happened with my dad. Even though I was medical power of attorney, there were a few times where my dad begged me to overdose him. And I said, Dad, I can't do that. If I overdose you, they perform an autopsy, I go to jail. Right. As much as I wanted to. I can't even begin to tell you, Destiny, how much I wanted to help put him out of his misery. But I couldn't do it because, yeah, I can go to jail. If they 
come and get the body and decided to perform an autopsy. Dan Bubb, Professor Bubb's in Clark County Jail, you know, for God knows how long. Yeah. Uh, maybe with, with a good attorney, maybe they get me off with a misdemeanor. I don't know. Right. But I'm not willing to go down that road. Right. But that's that's the the legal ramification here. That's why you have to be very careful how you go about this. You have to know how to navigate that channel. You got doctors and lawyers involved. Like I said, there are laws. So you can't just pedestrianly say, yeah, doctor, you know, give him the shot. Mm-hmm. That has to go through multiple channels before right. a decision is even made. So, so basically, um, so is there is there a way to like because what you I guess I'm not entirely sure of what you mean when you say there's a person that you can appoint to be mm-hmm, responsible mm-hmm, for your medical mm-hmm. decisions. Right. Um, does that mean that somebody could be appointed to euthanize you, or is that not? They legal they at you, all? you can't you can't euthanize no so 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 for medical appointment so I'm the negotiator with the doctor. Mm-hmm. If the doctor is willing to do it and it's you know the lawyer it's gone through all the legal hurdles then you can do it. Okay. If the doctor's not willing to do it, then you've got a negotiating there. But instead of having a whole bunch of family members arguing with the doctor, you have one person who does it. Okay. But the other thing that happens too, like I said, in, in my dad's case, what if he went like code blue? Okay. If he if he suddenly becomes you know incapacitated, he signed a do not resuscitate order. I have supervision over that. So that means no matter what happens, the paramedics, the hospital cannot resuscitate them. Mm-hmm. That's a legal binding document. If they do, they can be sued. So, I mean, in a way, isn't that kind of like a form of, you know, I'm voluntarily saying if right. I go into the state, even right. if I might come out of it, I don't want to. We Legally, we've gotten that far. We haven't made that next jump okay. to basically what is euthanasia. And that's okay. where you have all the legal, all the lobbying. I mean, you got all that bureaucratic red tape to navigate through. That's the next step, and that's what I think Death with Dignity is trying to do. They're okay. trying to make that next jump. So basically with Death with Dignity, if it were to pass, um, for people who are, um, I, I want to say, like, so for example, like people like my grandpa mm-hmm. who were, in pain, mm-hmm. but completely unaware mm-hmm. of like mm-hmm. the ability, they weren't mm-hmm. ma- they weren't in a right. a state right. of competence. Right. Would death with dignity give a family member the power to say, "We just want to end it now"? If if the law is there, the doctor agrees to it, and the family agrees to it. Okay, those are the requirements. Okay, if you have any dispute, then it can't be done on any side. On any side, yeah. Okay, between the family, the lawyers, and the doctor. Because what, what I was worried about is, you know, this is one of those things where you don't really have any room for error because it's human life. So if you have someone who's like, you know, someone who's a, who's appointed um, and all of a sudden this person gets sick and maybe this person wants their money or wants yeah. their estate, um, I worry about things like that. But if you sure. have multiple parties... Um, and if you I like, guess yeah. helps. and if you if you have, and this happens with people who are who need psychiatric care, they try to use this mm-hmm. for psychiatric, and and you can't. Like I said, the there are a lot of hurdles here. It's very, um, it, it's it, it's it's it, there there are a lot of obstacles there, and you know we we haven't made the jump. 
And like I said, part of that is because you don't even have an agreement in the medical community. Mm-hmm. You know, for a doctor, your job is to cure people who are sick. Right. So euthanasia right. is completely counter to what you, that oath you took. Right. So you have a lot of doctors who won't even get within 10 feet of this thing. They're an automatic no vote. Right. So that division in the community, then you have the legal aspects, then you have the family aspect. Mm-hmm. We may never get there. Yeah, I it, mean, it, it may be one of those situations where it takes multiple decades yeah. before you finally get there. But it, it raises a very valid point and an extremely difficult one. And, and that is, you know, how long are you willing to let somebody suffer before you say enough? Right. And, and that, that's, that's, that's why it's difficult. Um, I think we've made a lot of progress with it. But we still obviously have a very long way to go. So um, I think an obvious point of contention regarding this bill, we've mentioned it periodically throughout the discussion, but is that aspect of religion. You know, mm-hmm. I, was, I was raised Catholic, mm-hmm. and I went to a Catholic school. Mm-hmm. And we have religion class in Catholic school. Mm-hmm. And in Catholic school, I was taught that euthanasia is wrong mm-hmm. because it is God's choice and only God's choice mm-hmm. to decide mm-hmm. when your life is complete. Um, and there are a lot of different denominations that actually believe that same thing. Um, I, I don't agree with it today. Mm-hmm. I don't really agree with most blanket mm-hmm. statements where there's no room for exceptions mm-hmm. or individual accommodations. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, um, it's really interesting mm-hmm. how deeply religion mm-hmm. permeates mm-hmm. into people's lives and affects mm-hmm. their everyday mm-hmm. decisions, whether it's romantic decisions, mm-hmm. a medical decision, mm-hmm. a political mm-hmm. decision. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. So I have to ask, um, do you know if the bill received a lot of backlash from religious groups and voters? So, so one of the things you can do and your listeners can do, and this goes with any bill, mm-hmm. you guys can go online to the Nevada State Assembly and there's a website there, and you can actually look at the discussion because people can respond. So if you're for a bill or you're against a bill, you can actually type it, log on, and type your, your thing arguing against it. So it's for public feedback, democratic feedback. Mm-hmm. So you can go on and look at the comments for when these bills come up. And I went through and I looked at those comments, and I want to say, I want to say over 50% of the comments against it were religious based. Right. Religion-based. Yeah. Perhaps even more than that. Right. That's why I say it, it has a lot of resistance by a lot of different parties. And that's mm-hmm. what you got to be ready for. If you bring it up in a conversation, you can encounter one or more of any of these different parties who are completely opposed to it. Mm-hmm. And that's what you have to be ready to do. Um, I've, I've received feedback and <laughs> some... Some pretty serious feedback on you're gonna go to hell, but you blah 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 blah. Like, oh, please, you know. Which I uh, I wonder how these same people would respond if they were watching their loved ones suffer. You it's know I mean? a good question. You know, it's it's easy to sit there and be what they call the armchair quarterback. Yeah. But what happens when it's you? Right. What happens when it's you who's sitting there next to a dying family member and the doctor's right there? And you have to have that difficult conversation. So, we, yeah, it's easy for anybody. I can sit in a chair and get on the computer. I can type all sorts of nasty comments, this and that. But, oh, well, what happens when Dan Bub's in the hot seat? You know, how is he going to respond to it? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we can all, that, that's why, I mean, some of these people bring up valid points, but that's why you also have to take it with a grain of salt as well. 
What do you think is the main reason why it didn't pass? I I think it's I think it's because you have uh, politicians who just don't want to touch it. It's so um, like apathy. No, not not even really apathy. It's such a divisive topic Mm. that they they don't want to touch it because they don't want to upset a certain percent or component of their constituencies. Right. So um, the easiest thing to do is just pass, you know, pass the hot potato. Just here, you take it. Here, you take it. And just keep kicking the can down the road. But at some point, you know, if if there are enough people who go through this, and if I'm a politician and I'm representing. I don't know, say Henderson, part of Henderson. And I start getting some really serious feedback here from people and who are, who are writing me letters, writing me emails. They're sitting there going, you know, Representative Bub, I'm watching my terminally ill aunt just suffer. Every day is terrible, even with medication and this and that. Over time, if I keep getting this, I'm going to start listening mm-hmm. because... You know, you can play politics all you want, but at the end of the day, you're still human. Right. Your constituents are human, and you have to be persuasive. And part of what people like is when you have somebody who's compassionate, who's empathetic, who can talk to them and say, hey, guys, I know from a religious basis you disagree with this, but look what is happening here. Mm -hmm. Do you really want to see people go through this? If you can articulate it the right way, if you can present it the right way, you might be able to persuade people. Some people, no way, you're just not going to do it. They're like, no, you know, just no matter what, you can be the most gifted orator in the world. It won't make a difference. Yeah. Right. But that's why politically, you know, it's it's this is a very touchy one. It's a political football, as they call it. Is this something that people can still, um, like, is it still open for people to push it? Or oh, absolutely. To... You, you can write any time. You can write your representative any time to push it. You can um, sign up to be a member of the Death and Dignity. I pretty regularly receive emails from different parts of the country saying, this is Peg so-and-so in Maine. You know, we watching this. We're making progress. Mm-hmm. But what, what it really is getting at, at, at its most common denominator, its ultimate depth, is human compassion. Right. Do we have it within us? to be compassionate to the point where we understand, okay, this is what hospice does. And hospice is very good. And a lot of doctors will point hospice. But even with administering heavy medication, do you really want to watch a family member suffer for six more months? It's a very hard decision. So I think this is something as a society that we have to discuss. Yeah, It's not an easy conversation. And we're not a society that likes to confront. We want to turn, you know, <laughs> right. we, we, want to go, we want to go the other way. But I think at some point, we're going to have to have a national conversation about this and in a very thoughtful and very, you know, uh, clearly thought through way, decide what we want to do. Right. And I will have all this information attached to the episode description so that if you guys want to do any sort of um, participation or further research on your own, you'll have easy access to that. So I will include all those details. Um, before you go, do you want to give any final statements as to why death with dignity is something people should consider or reconsider, mm-hmm. for that matter? Uh, yes. I, I realize people have their own views. They have their own political views. They have their own religious beliefs, and I'm not going to try to persuade them to go against those. That's fine. But what I'm trying to get them to consider is the significance and the 
rationality behind death with dignity. And it primarily is going to have to come from watching a family member, a really close person, go through it. And even then, you may come out against it and say, no, I still don't want to do it. But it's definitely worth considering because it, while it's true that we have hospice, we have all these, there are a lot of great hospice centers. They're really fantastic. But it's a very tough question of do I really want to watch my loved one go through this? And that's why, like I said, there's not necessarily a wrong answer here. And you have to think it through. There's a lot of conversation. Like I said, there's a lot of legal hurdles, medical hurdles you have to go through. But I, I would urge people, at the very least, just go on the Death with Dignity website, your local chapter. You can do the national one and read what it's about. Read what people are saying and, you know, consider it. You know, these aren't ill-conceived things that are happening here. These are people who are trying to get us to consider another possibility. Right. And it's not an easy one. Okay. <laughs> That's why a lot, it's difficult. Right. It's, it's hard to get these bills passed. But at the end of the day, you know, you can still believe what you want to believe. I'm not trying to change your mind. Okay? I'm mm -hmm. not trying to challenge you, challenge your beliefs or anything like that. I'm just trying to say there is another possibility here to consider. Right. Thank you so much. Um, all right, everyone. Well, that wraps up our final episode and also our first season of this podcast. Thank you, Dr. Bob, for being such a sure. great guest to sure. conclude this season with. And thank you all again for participating in this journey with me and being so supportive. Um, I'm going to take the next few months to get season two all planned and worked out. And hopefully I will be able to come back with an even stronger season than the first. So keep an eye on my Instagram for more details regarding that. As always, thank you all for talking elephants with me. And I will see you sooner rather than later.